0: Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind the scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them.
1: For a second, I saw your mother. My mother had passed away years ago. She always used to say, Well, just remember, Jennifer, they all lie. Whatever you do, they all
0: lie. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Uh, Yvonne, how are you doing today?
2: Steve, I'm having a Monday. This will this will air on a Tuesday, but I am having such a textbook Monday. How are you doing?
0: <laughs> uh, I'm doing fantastic. Actually, today's not been a bad day at all, but I'm sorry to hear about your Monday. I
2: mean, you know, there are worse things than a, than, than a Monday, but... Um, <laughs>
0: It happens in our industry where sometimes things, uh, deadlines we didn't realize were there sneak up. And, yeah, um, you
2: know. yep, yep. We got it. just a fun, fun Monday afternoon surprise. Deadline. Yeah. Um, but that's okay. That's no big deal. Um, well, so let's um, introduce our guest and find out if she's having a Monday. Uh, our guest is Jen Lawrence. She's from the Lawrence Firm PSC in Covington, Kentucky. You can look her up at lawrencefirm.com, which is spelled how you would think it would be. But just in case, it's L A W. R-E-N-C-E firm.com. Jen, thank you for joining us. And are you having a Monday today?
1: Well, thank you for having me. And I am having a Monday. Monday started out by having a court hearing I thought was going to be on Zoom. And I was notified it was in person. Oh, nice. I left and ran out of my office, and I forgot to put on heels, so I showed up (laughs) first time ever in flip flops.
0: In flip flops, what what did the judge say about that?
1: (laughs) He he said, "Welcome, Jen. Nice to see you today."
0: Exactly. (laughs)
2: Yeah.
0: Oh, Oh, that's awesome. (laughs)
2: I feel like that's always how it goes. Wardrobe malfunctions just wait. They just wait for big court days. And then that's when they happen.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that reminds me. And I just have to tell a quick story, which hopefully our trial lawyers uh, will appreciate. But uh, there's a lawyer down in Tampa named uh, Richard Shapiro, who we have not had on the show and we need to. But he was telling me one time about how he his first case that he had in Key West it was a big case, a good injury case. And so he got, you know, decked out into like one of his nicest suits and, uh, you know, went, walked into the courtroom and everybody in the courtroom was wearing shorts, flip-flops, and like Hawaiian shirts. And he's like, what is going on? And, and apparently that was a Key West attire, you know,
2: <laughs> man. So he totally looks like the out of towner. Yes. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah. Absolutely. Bummer, double bummer.
2: <laughs> um, well, so that is that is quite a Monday, Jen. I think you might win. Um, so let me tell our listeners a little bit about you before we get into the case that we're going to talk about today, which I'm I'm really looking forward to talking about. Um, Jen has a focus on product liability, mass torts, and med mal, um, particularly medical devices, dangerous drugs, and hospital negligence, uh, like we're going to talk about today. She practices throughout the country, um, including Ohio and Kentucky. And um, one of the things about Jen's bio that that i think is really important that we all try to do but lose focus of sometimes is that you know she says her mission is to help families gain closure through the discovery of not just an explanation of what happened but why it happened and i think a lot of times when we're contacted by people that's much more what they want than um you know than a settlement or a verdict is they just want to know what what happened and why right. um so i was really glad that you brought that up jen um Jen got her bachelor's from the Ohio State University.
0: I'm glad you said that. You might, you know, I'm from Ohio, and my dad is a massive Ohio State Buckeyes, the Ohio State Buckeyes fan. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm glad he'll, he'll be glad that you, uh, that you said it correctly. Yes,
2: I know, <laughs> I know the rules. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And um, she got her law degree from the Salmon P. Chase College of Law. Um, Jen's a member of uh, the Cincinnati Bar Association, the Northern Kentucky Bar Association, Kentucky Justice Association. Um, she's a district vice president and member of the Ohio Association for Justice, as well as AAJ, which we were talking about on our show last week. Um, she's previously served on the Ohio CLE Commission and the Kentucky Supreme Court Committee on admission to the bar. Um, and then in all all that free time, you can imagine that she has, um, she's serving as a board member for the Children's Law Center, the the Kenton County Library Foundation, various other boards. Um, And then also she's an adjunct professor at the Chase College of Law. And um, she's what she's been named the top, um, one of the top 25 super lawyers and top 50 super lawyers in Kentucky for 2021. Um, So Terrific accomplishments, terrific work, including the case we're going to talk about today. Um, I will stop bragging about you, Jen, except I'm curious what do you teach um, at the Chase College of Law?
1: Well, I, I'm not actively teaching right now, but in years past, I have taught trial techniques and negotiation skills. Nice. And, and it, it has, um, it's always great to go back to your alma mater and teach because. Through that process, you learn things about yourself and you just gain greater insight. So i really enjoyed doing that throughout the years.
0: And, and I think importantly, do your students call you Professor J-Law?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, they just say Professor Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, they don't, they don't know her like that. Right, right, not, yeah.
0: uh,
2: <laughs> only only the kiss ups would try to get away with that.
0: That's right. That's right.
2: Um well so let's talk about the case that we're going to talk about today and I almost feel like we should give like some sort of like trigger warning to new parents or something because
0: boy well, any, yeah. yeah, any parents yeah any parents right yeah.
2: this is such a scary story um and it starts out with something that you know I, it happens to a lot of people, a lot of families, a lot of kids, um, and it really turns into something unexpected and and that Jen was able to get justice for. But so um, the case we're going to talk about was tried in Claremont County, Ohio, in September of 2010, um, and the case is Longbottom et al. versus Gary S. Huber, D.O., and Qualified Emergency Specialists. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what happened, Jim, but I'm really going to ask you to fill in a lot of these details, particularly as it relates to medically what was going on. Um, but as I mentioned, talking about parents, um, Jen represented the parents of Kyle Smith, who at the time was a, um, nine years old and he was playing at a, um, at a friend's house or his dad's friend's house was playing with another kid in the living room. And he, they were roughhousing. He hits his head on the coffee table. And he starts bleeding from his ear. He basically lacerated his ear. He's in pain and he later starts vomiting. So his parents basically, you know, go straight from there. I think um, his dad, Jesse Smith, goes to pick up the mom, Christy Longbottom, which was kind of on the way, it sounds like, and take Kyle to the hospital. Um, So they go to the emergency room at at Mercy Hospital Claremont and um, Dr. Huber um, which his employer was Qualified Emergency Specialists, Inc. He treated Kyle. So he sutured the laceration and discharged him and told the parents that basically he didn't have a typical head injury and that he just needed to sleep it off. Um, he he was not really concerned. And as you can imagine, it's a case um, that we're talking about on this show for a reason because um, that was not the situation. So Kyle goes to sleep. It sounds like his parents or at least his mom were right there in the room with him. Um, And they're trying to let him sleep it off um, because that's what they've been told to do. But meanwhile... Um, he wakes, he he vomits at some point in his sleep and he wakes up and he's having trouble breathing. So they take him right back to the hospital. They went to Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And at that point, he got his first imaging. The first emergency room did not do any imaging. Um, so the second time when he goes, he has an emergency CT scan, which reveals a large epidermal, epidural hematoma in his brain that required immediate surgery. Um, sounds like probably saved his life, but he suffered significant injuries. I mean, he was in a coma for a while. He eventually had to relearn how to swallow, eat, communicate, walk. He had a permanent brain injury um, that affected his development on his left side. And th- those are things that we'll get more into. But basically, um, the failure to sort of work up that head injury the first time he went to the hospital that night led to um, all of these complications, one of the defenses in the case was that a nurse had hand, handed the parents at the, fir- at the during that first emergency room visit, had handed the parents a pamphlet on brain injuries that said, among other things, to wake somebody up every two hours. Um, but we'll get into this, but the parents um, testify that they had been told by Dr. Huber that's for, you know, that's our general brain injury thing. That's not really what we're dealing with here. You don't have to do that. Um, And so they didn't. Um, But that was one of the big defenses in the case, along with sounds like some new testimony at trial about whether they could have done a CT. Um, So we'll dig into that. But eventually um, after a 10 day trial, the jury found Dr. Huber negligent and awarded uh, 2.412 roughly a little over that a million in damages, um, about two point one of that was for Kyle's medical expenses, his pain and suffering, his loss of future earning capacity. There was also a three hundred thousand dollar loss of consortium award for um, one hundred and fifty for each of his parents, um, and then there was a prejudgment interest award as well for failure to make a good faith settlement attempt, and that 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 turned into a whole appellate issue we'll talk about. Um, But so for a total verdict of Uh, 2.743 million, um, although there was the prejudgment interest issue, what was really interesting. And one of the the things I wanted to to start with, um, Jen, was that this verdict form, the jury had to write out the basis for their negligence finding. And, um, which they did a great job with. They have. Do you have it in front of you, Steve?
0: I do. I, so, because I, I pulled this out because I, I thought it was interesting. And, and I, my first question was, is, is this something that is specific to just medical malpractice cases in Ohio? Or do they do this with all uh, verdicts in Ohio?
1: It's something that I think can be done with any, any type of case in Ohio. What happened in this case was the defense lawyer Asked for that instruction to be sent back to the jury, and we objected to that question being sent back for a couple of different reasons. First of all, the burden of proof isn't to establish exactly why or how they came to their verdict. We thought it impeded the the um, privacy and the province of the jury. And quite frankly, we were concerned that it was going to raise the possibility for an appeal on inconsistent verdicts. So so for those reasons, we objected. We lost. And so that question went back to the jury.
0: Yeah, and I'll just read what, so the question is, is interrogatory number two, it says state in what respects defendant Dr. Gary S. Huber was negligent and what the uh, jury wrote was based on the evidence we believe Dr. Gary S. Huber did not instruct the parents about the possibility of significant head injury or how to observe and monitor Kyle for such injuries, um, and that—that that was my, you know, my big question. I think all trial lawyers, when they when they write out their reasoning like that, is how how does it get used during an appeal of the case? Um, you know, is there some sort of argument that maybe they misunderstood? preponderance of the evidence or that or uh, and i'm not saying they did they, that was a good explanation they gave there but um well, and
2: they did didn't they didn't they have a motion for new trial or something where the argument was that that wasn't the theory that you right. all were proceeding yeah. under yes and so a lot of
1: our focus was spent medically on the fact that they failed to order and perform a head ct scan and if right. had that been done it would have shown the epidural hematoma um, and so that we did present evidence with regard to the lack of the instructions or the negligence on the instruction. But really, that was a basis for the motion for a new trial. And it was also a basis for the appeal when it was filed. Um, fortunately, we prevailed. And um, when the incidentally, when the case was argued, when I argued in, in the court of appeals, which for this county is the twelfth district court of appeals. One of the one of the appellate judges, and I think he was the presiding judge on the panel, was one of my former moot court advisors <laughs> from high school. So. Wow! <laughs> did he get,
0: did he give you any tips after the argument to say? Uh, yeah. What could have been done All your hard work paid <laughs> right. off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't talk to them
2: about it. I just made
1: sure I was super prepared.
2: Right. Yeah, right. yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because I can see, you know, I, I feel like your jury did do a good job. And, and what I thought was interesting in reading what they um, had written for their explanation of negligence, which I w- I was shocked that they had to do. But it makes more sense now. Although I agree with you. I don't I don't really think that's required. Um Was that it's, it's one of those insights that we get into how juries think, because I do think that you, that that's the kind of thing on sort of a personal level, or when we go to a hospital or a doctor or anywhere and you feel like you're rushed or things aren't being explained to you, or you're not being told things, or you're being handed this giant pack of paper that you're told doesn't really matter, um, or is never really explained to you. (laughs) I can see how that really resonated with them and ended up being the thing they could all really get on board with.
0: Right.
1: Well, and I think that one of the takeaways from this case from a legal standpoint is anytime there is negligence with regard to a failure to communicate or a failure to properly communicate inform patients and provide all the necessary information, and I think that's really something that does resonate with the average juror, because a lot of people have life experiences with interaction and communications with health care, whether it be with our own primary care doctor or if we do have to go to the emergency room. And so I think that that was something that in this case, the way it developed, it was easy for the jury to understand it. Is and relate to it as opposed to some of the technical aspects of the yeah. action, uh, with regard to the need for further testing and and what the testing would have shown, so forth.
2: Yeah, and I related to that issue. I I I thought that that you all did a great job of really laying this out for the jury because I I do think you know if. You go to the emergency room for a reason um, when something like this happens. And you all had really laid out the fact that number one, where this injury was what meant that there was the likelihood of um of of this sort of complication. Number two, that like the CT machine was basically right there. Um and that there was the ability, you know, for for the radiology to be read remotely if it needed to be that basically it was not hard to get this done and it sounded like throughout discovery they were basically like yeah we we could have done it or i I could, I could have done it but i didn't need to do it or or whatever and then a trial there was there was briefly the explanation that they had a policy not to do it on kids under 14 um, but then maybe that disappeared. I'm I'm really interested in hearing how that whole thing played out.
0: And and that sounds like that was the very first time that was ever mentioned in right. that whole case was, yeah. was at during the trial.
1: So one of the things that had happened was after this injury had occurred and in the years prior to trial, the closer we got to trial, there had been some changes, I think, within the medical literature. And with with specifically with regard to CT scans, and at what point in time should we do them for children, given the effects of radiation long term? Okay. And so the evidence-based medical principles had changed over time. And so as we neared trial, if if Kyle, for example, had gone into the emergency room, Closer to the point in time, a child, he probably would not have gotten a CT scan because they would have been concerned about the effects of radiology or radiation rather. And so um, so that was how that change came
2: about. I see.
1: And, and then they essentially tried to make it almost, I mean, they tried to use it as a defense with regard to their own negligence but they, I think they also tried to use it in part on causation to say, hey, we didn't do anything wrong, but even if we did, we weren't gonna do this anyway, in here's why.
2: Okay, so. gotcha. Um, yeah, okay, because I was like, I mean, those, those sort of trial surprises are always um, interesting.
0: Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed.
2: Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me.
0: Yes, yes, a lot more working from the computer, yes, and only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services.
2: That's right, I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference, online, it's more important now than ever.
0: I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now, Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number, they'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think, my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of Documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services.
2: Yeah, and I mean LTS. I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we're on a first name basis. (laughs) You know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained, and you can always count on them to represent you well. Whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions, or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you. You can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them.
0: Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, Just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there. But they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives. And everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTS dot com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide and they I know they've done trials all over the country, uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. dot com.
2: One of the things that you said, I can't remember if it was in during the opening or closing. But one of the things that you really emphasized was that um, it, there was this um, I guess it was sort of like a. Um, a treatise maybe, or a practice guide about emergency medicine. You're, you're smiling. Cause I think, you know what I'm talking about that. Um, I really want to talk about how you use that because it really resonated in terms of both why you ha- can have a, what you're expecting at the emergency room, but w- also why the emergency room can be a really bad experience as a patient, which is that they're really just making sure you're not dying. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, this treatise that, that you got and what that basically said he should have been looking for and how you used that with him in his, in his cross and at trial.
1: So th- this case, I have the, the honor and the privilege of trying the case with my father, Richard Warren. And my, it was really my dad's idea. My dad said, let's, let's get this emergency textbook. I know that we have it in our, we have a, you know, vast medical library like many lawyers do. And he said, let's, let's get the textbook. And, um, what was so great about it is that one of the defense experts, I think was in the, the treatise that we were using for the proposition that, um, Essentially, you need to rule out the most life-threatening conditions first, um, otherwise known as rule out the worst first. Right. That's the <clears throat> plan. And they obviously didn't do that in this case. And so we used it upon cross um, of both Dr. Huber and one of his experts. And it was very effective because it had been a longstanding treatise. and. Um, and it's, it's it up for the principles that we said should have been followed.
0: It, one, one thing I, I was trying to take from the closing there is that it seemed like the, the section of the book or what, that you were using a lot was written by a, uh, somebody who was there in Cincinnati. I think Claremont County is, uh, is just East of, of Cincinnati and the, Dr. Huber was kind of acting like one, he didn't know what this book was, and two, he didn't know who this guy was. And I, it, it, it was a little unclear to me, but it sounded like maybe Dr. Huber even went to the University of Cincinnati, um, so he, you know, should have known who this person was. Was that something yeah. that came out?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think it impacted overall his his credibility. One of my favorite moments in the trial was actually at the end of the case when we were allowed to talk to the jury afterwards and the judge did it in a way where, you know, sometimes they may let one side go versus the other, but the judge said, no, I want both sides attorneys present at the same time. And so when the jury came back and we were talking to them, the defense lawyer said, well, in order to, have had the plaintiffs prevail in this case, you must have thought that Dr. Huber was lying. And they all screamed,
2: yeah. <laughs> 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 oh man.
0: <laughs> well, th- that's that brings up a part of the uh, the part of the case because so there was a, a, a one thing I wanted to talk to you about and just this will be sort of a multi part question, uh, which is which I know is not a good thing to do, but uh, <laughs> we'll go with it. Uh, so this event happened on, in March of two thousand two, and then there was a case filed in two thousand three. Uh, and then I think your clients were deposed, and they said what they believed happened, and and um, said that uh, that the doctor had told him that they don't really need to follow the head injury protocol, don't need to check on him while he's sleeping, that kind of stuff. And then he came in and said the exact opposite that he had told them all of that, mm-hmm. uh, and then and then the case got dismissed, and then refiled. I think in two thousand eight, is that right? Um, So, so there's a significant time period there. So, but it sounds like the doctor uh, had, you know, basically given, it was almost like a, uh, you know, like in a car accident case where he said, she said like, you know, one side is saying one thing, the other side saying the exact opposite, you're only going to be able to believe, you know, only one of them can be right. Um, So it sounded like the doctor said, no, I did tell him about this, even though their defense was also that, you know, when he came in, he, he all the neurological signs were intact. Like his Glasgow Coma Score was a 15, which is the highest. Um, you know that he you know hadn't lost hearing, and there was some other things I, I can't remember what all mentioned, but um, they, but he said he did tell him about that. And then I, I could tell from your uh, from your father's closing. did it sound like the doctor had prepared himself or the lawyers had prepared him pretty well on the science of epidural hematomas and the treatment of epidural hematomas. And so he, you know, I think the case got tried eight years later, um, eight eight years, so meaning 2010. um, The doctor had done a lot of reading and training in the meantime to figure out uh, exactly what he should have done. So I, I know that was a lot that I said there and a lot, a lot of questions there, but I guess, you know, the, uh, how did they, I mean, so the, I mean, for the doctor to come in there and, ba- and basically take the diametrically opposed uh, position of your clients um, talk about that a little bit. And then how, how the cross-examination of the doctor went during the trial. Well, let
1: me address it overall. I, I think that there, my clients, um, Our clients were very nice people, Um, and they were just wonderful parents, and um, their story was completely believable when you would hear it firsthand, and so I wasn't surprised if the jury believed my clients over Dr. Huber. I did have concerns, though, because my client's father, his father, Jesse, was so emotionally distraught on the witness stand Mm -hmm. that literally right after he said his name um we had to take a break before i could even question him further about what happened because he was so upset and his mom was just equally as upset and after our clients were done testifying i remember the judge saying to me to myself and my dad well now I know why we're here. And I thought, oh, no, we, we might be in trouble on the case. And, um, and so, and I think a lot of their emotion stemmed from really trusting the doctor and listening to the doctor and not pushing it further um, because his dad had asked about waking him up and what else should we do? And, uh, and his mom was so concerned about him that when they got home, they actually both slapped on a couch and she slapped, you know, literally head to head with him and woke up to him kind of gasping for air. And they had to call 911 in the middle of the night. We had to be air-cleared. And so on top of it, it they, uh, they also had so much, I think, um, Maybe post traumatic stress from what they had witnessed their son go through, and then just the ongoing struggles that their son had continued to have. And, um, but I think one thing that really impacted Dr. Huber's credibility was there was a point in time during the cross examination when my dad asked a question he did something we as lawyers are trained not to do you know that that rule about don't ask your question you right. don't know the answer to
0: right
1: now of course there's there's exceptions to that rule and and he knew to ask this question and i was holding my breath when he asked it I thought, what is he doing so he asked <laughs> dr huber he said now when you sign your discharge papers You just take out a rubber stamp from your briefcase. And Dr. Huber said yes.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: (laughs) And I thought, well, this is fantastic. I mean, I, but it really went to his credibility. And I think it really made it seem like, you know, this is just another number. Here's another patient coming through the door. And so I think that really impacted it. But I'll tell you what did most of all. The true tiebreaker between who to believe was the 911 tape. Right. Because at the very end of the 911 tape, when Jesse is Kyle's father, is talking to the 911 operator, he references the conversation as to what Dr. Huber said. Um, and how Dr. Huber told them not to worry about it. And um, that it wasn't a typical head injury. And so I think that that was really the tiebreaker in the case because it was an independent collaboration, of course. And at that point in time, you know, his, his as a parent, you're just trying to give all the information you know. You know, they don't know the significance, the outcome, or that anything has been done wrong.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's an emergency situation. You're not thinking about a lawsuit down the road. I mean, he's just trying to tell him everything that he can. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, just to be clear, what what did the literature say about how often they should have checked on him if, if they had followed the literature?
1: Uh, I think every two hours.
0: Every two hours, okay. But,
1: but really what should have happened is Kyle should have been, he should have had a head CT scan. And if they weren't going to do that, What they should have done is they should have admitted him to a neuro ICU unit. And he should have been had um, hourly observations so that if there was any change neurologically, that they could have done something immediately. Because by the point in time when 911 was called and he was air care, Cincinnati children's, um, his brain had started herniating. And he was very, very close to death.
2: Okay. Yeah, I, I so I kind of skipped over it in part because I knew that you'd be able to explain it better than me, Jen. But um, I sort of skipped over um, how this injury works. And I, I didn't really know until um, reading the documents that you had sent us that that kids are actually more susceptible to this kind of injury or these kinds of complications. Can you talk just from a general sense about what this injury was and what could have been done if it was caught when it should have been caught?
1: Sure. So um, in general, um, kids are more susceptible to developing an epidural hematoma. Um, which is simply um, bleeding in the epidural space around the brain. And the reason why kids are more susceptible, I didn't realize this until this case, actually, um, but some of our bones are not fully developed. And so in kids, in particular, the temporal bone, kind of on the side of of your head, near your face, around your ear, is thinner and it's not fully developed in children. And that has been known medically for years upon years. And so anytime a child hits their head, especially the side of their head, they are more susceptible to this type of injury developing. Usually what happens is, um, and they might complain of jaw pain, mm-hmm. um, which, which Kyle had jaw pain, and sometimes they'll have a fractured skull. You don't have to have a fractured skull. Um, and so in this case, what happened was Kyle was running around a coffee table in a family room. And he was playing with his cousins. And he slipped on the rug and the side of his head hit the coffee table. So he hit a hard surface. Um, which is also significant. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's really how this injury can occur. It can occur if kids fall off of, a lot of times kids will fall off like play sets or gym sets. Um, my daughter actually, after this case, my oldest daughter had a fractured skull and an epidural hematoma. Mm-hmm. Um, our dog, we were leaving on vacation, our dog cut her off. And she went up into the air and fell, and hit the side of her head on our concrete driveway. Oh my and god. So there, there really, there's no, there's no known height, but typically, if it's a hard surface, um, you've got to be more worried.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting when I looked up an epidural hematoma, just so I could have a kind of understanding and the, um, I think the artery that got ruptured in Kyle was the middle meningeal artery. And, um, and when I looked it up, that's what it, that in the end showed an image of it. That's what they showed was that the middle, uh, uh meningeal artery had ruptured. And I, and what I thought was interesting is that exactly the stuff that you were pointing out in your opening and closing, which was the fact that, that Kyle had a lucid interval is a sign of an epidural uh, injury, meaning that like for the first hour or two, they can seem fine uh-huh. and then start getting nausea and vomiting, which he, which he had getting the jaw pain. Uh, as I was reading this, I was like, well, you know, he seems to almost follow textbook what you would think on an, uh, an epidural hematoma. And yeah, and, and I guess that would explain the uh, Glasgow Coma score, of a 15 that then, uh, you know, went down from that. Uh-huh. So, um, so I, I just thought it was interesting that when I looked it up just on my own, just mm-hmm. to do some research, it almost seemed like it was, uh, painting the picture of what, uh, Kyle, uh, had.
1: Yes. And so one of, one of the things that can be done certainly is observation, but if there's an expansion of the hematoma, sometimes what they will do is they will, um, actually evacuate it. So, because if it becomes large enough between the bleeding and the swelling in the brain, um, it can cause compression, it can cause brain herniation. And so, and a shifting, um, of the brain of the ventricles in the brain. And so if it, if it increases, then sometimes they will have to go in and evacuate it. And if they have to do that, um, the goal is to do that before there's, there's a duration of neurological symptoms so that you can prevent the neurological sequelae and consequences of becoming permanent. And so that opportunity was lost by virtue of the fact that we didn't have the testing and the observation um, because he really should have been transferred down to, Chil- to Saudi Children's and Savvy Children's for that
0: observation, and it sounded like that the uh, the the surgeon who who treated him uh, after he did the surgery and and was able to I guess release the uh, the blood at that point he didn't know whether or not Kyle was going to live or die that it, yes. it was still sort of touch and go and then he was in a, in a coma for several days after that. Yes. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company Like digital law marketing.
2: That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of.
0: Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into. But it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are and digital marketing is great at it.
2: Exactly. And you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish.
0: Yeah. It's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done, but they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website and you should go visit them at Digital Law marketing.com that's digital law tell him tell him we sent you
2: it sounded like like that surgeon who in uh, that second admission who who did that surgery ended up giving you a lot of um, good testimony that that maybe he wasn't necessarily being disclosed as the expert for but you ended up really being able to use his testimony for other elements of your case as well
1: yes um, it was uh, fortunately, we were. Um, it was Doctor. It was a neurosurgeon at Cincinnati Children's, Doctor. Kerry Crone, and um, he has taken care of many, many children in the greater Cincinnati area for many years. Um, and he, they have a policy at their facility not to have their providers get involved in litigation. And so as many facilities do. And so we had to go through the hospital's attorneys and we weren't able to talk to him ahead of time. And, you know, and so it, it, um, it was, we went back and forth on whether or not we should do it because we didn't want to put him in a position that would then box us into a position, so to speak on the case. But we felt at the end of the day that it was very important to do. And after um, we did have, I think, one meeting, maybe early on with Dr. Crone. But for the most part, it was almost even his DAPO. It was almost like a trial DAPO.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, so... We haven't really talked, we've talked about Kyle's injury. We haven't talked a lot about what he really, how this affected him and and continues to affect him. Really heartbreaking stuff because, I mean, he he was old enough at the time of injury where, you know, sounded like he was pretty athletic and doing well in school. And he lost a a lot of that. So um, talk a little bit about both, you know, just, um, you know, I guess physically he has physical impairments, but then also just as a kid, how this injury permanently affected him.
1: Well, he um, he walks with a limp, and he's got weakness on one side, um, both in his in his arm and his leg. And if he's standing there, you don't necessarily. Part of the difficulty of the case is you could look at him and he looks normal, as, as many people who have brain injuries do. And so you really couldn't tell the extent of the injuries. When he walks, you can see it a little bit, um, but it's subtle. And a lot of his his injuries really stem from the brain injury itself. In other words, emotionally, how it's impacted him. Um, cognitively, he is slower on processing and things that you would expect. But I think a lot of his injuries stem from the anxiety that was created from the injury itself. Mm. And um, But throughout the years, he has really done well. Um, he works with his dad he's gotten married okay. and still lives in the same community he's just a wonderful guy and um, so he, I remember our neuropsychologist testifying during the trial and he talked about resilience and the meaning of resilience and what happens when kids are injured and how important it is for not only the kids to have resilience, but for the parents to really maintain their stamina and help their help their children have resilience. And so he spent a lot of time talking about the family unit and what great parents these were.
0: And I guess along those lines, I think Kyle did testify. How did he do? And I guess how much memory did he have of everything that had happened?
1: He didn't have a lot of memory about what happened, but he... The jury was very engaged and very interested in what he had to say. We spent a lot of time talking about how his injuries affect him in his everyday life. Um, And he gave examples of different things. He had a um, a 504 plan, which is similar to an IEP for school. And so he had some additional resources, but he talked about the difficulty and not being able to do sports and do the things that he loved to do when he was younger. Um, And he talked about how it impacted him emotionally and socially. And one of the things that happened during the trial is I had asked Kyle um, if he, I think it was during my direct of him. I'm trying to remember if it was during the cross-examination. But there became a point in time when we asked Kyle if he wanted to walk, so that the jury could see him walk. And the, the defense lawyer was really trying to push Kyle. And I, it must have been during the cross. And I, I, because I don't think it's something I would have done. I'm sorry, I don't remember. But, but what I do remember is what I said. And I said in front of the jury, "Let's let Kyle decide." because I knew it was important to empower this young man Mm -hmm. and give him some control over a situation for which he had none, And he made the decision that he would walk a little bit in front of the jury. He himself, not the defense lawyer.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Can you, um, I mean, to the extent you can talk about it, the case was, was, filed, as Steve mentioned, and then dismissed and refiled. And so by the time you get to trial, I think Kyle's maybe 17 years old at that point. Um, mm-hmm. Can you, can you t- speak about what the reason for that was why it was um, dismissed? Sure. And refiled?
0: Well, it, and not only that, but just the, the the difficulties that arise in trying a case eight years after the event, and you know, when, wow. when so much yeah. has gone by and, and the doctors had a lot of time to learn about uh, everything that's going to be said.
1: We call that going to witness school.
0: Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> 20 right. to go to witness school. Right, right. So, um, so one of the things that happened was, so let me back up. In Ohio, we have a rule, 41A, which we have in most states. Obviously, it's a civil procedure, but in Ohio, we have the capability to dismiss a case and then refile it within a year from the date of the dismissal. We didn't wanna do that, but what happened was our main expert witness against Dr. Huber wasn't available to come to trial. And this was before Zoom technology or <clears throat> televideo video was really in play. And we felt it was important that our witness be there live. And we had asked the judge for a continuance and he would not grant one. And so the judge told us, I guess your only option is to dismiss the case and refile. So that is what we did. And we also felt that during that time period, it was important to continue to see how Kyle had progressed, because the last thing we want to do is put forth a case that isn't based on actual evidence And so we took advantage of that time period. And um, I think he had some updated neuropsych testing done and and really updated everything. And I think during that interim may have also been when um, we got some of the trial testimony of uh, Dr. Crone in anticipation. So we continued to work on the case, Mm -hmm. even though it wasn't filed. And of course, we discussed everything uh, with
2: our clients. Right. Yeah. Well, I can see too, (laughs) how, especially with a kid, how there could be benefits to, um, especially when you're talking about future medical damages or, um, future impairment where you've got this, where you've got somebody who's, I mean, you know, you've given, you've given it time and you probably would have had that passage of time, a decent passage of time when you were set to try the case the first time, Mm -hmm. but you did, you, at that point, then you do have this kind of young man who's, who's done his best for, you know, the past eight years or whatever at that point um, that you can put on the stand. So I can see how Like as a juror, I think I would be really interested in that, seeing that, that longer passage of time and how somebody had coped with it. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And one of our, one of our main goals was to reject not only now, but what his future is going to look like at every different interval. Right. And so we were really having to, to not only struggle with this young man's been injured and he Looks so good but also with presenting the case in such a way so that the jury could see him as a as an injured person not only at 17 but 27 37 47 and, you know for the remainder of his life
2: right yeah I had um, I remember <laughs> like one of the f- the first cases that I ever worked on where we had a client who had like really bad injuries um, And, but then when I met him, he looked pretty good, you know, like he, he, he seemed like he was doing pretty well. He was not the kind of guy to complain. He was not the kind of guy to ask for help. And I was really concerned about it. And, um, but you know, I think Jeff and Steve and, and the guys that at our firm were really kind of telling me, you know, like jury, juries like people who can help themselves, but it does, especially as a newer lawyer, it made me really nervous. I was like, what does this mean?
1: Well, Kyle, Kyle
0: looks so good.
1: I'll tell you that our Corey Porter said, what's wrong with him again? <laughs> 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 right. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. You're all the deposition. <laughs> yeah. well,
0: that, that actually brings up a, a good oh, point gosh. that I wanted to mention, which is the, the special damages, I guess, or not, not all just special damages, but your, you know, future projections for him, because, um, I, You know, first of all, you had I think about $140,000 in medical bills, but you had to um, remove some of that because he had obviously fallen and hit his head, and he was going to have to go to the hospital anyways. Um, So I think you reduced that by $17,000, and then for his future income, you weren't you weren't taking the position he couldn't work. you know, and he, he did finish high school. He did start driving. And, and as you said, I think he uh, was able to do some carpentry. He just couldn't do any of that stuff as good as he could before. And so I think if if I remember you uh, had about a number of like 640,000 that you thought was reduced his, you know, future income. And I think the jury gave you almost exactly that, maybe just a, sh- a shade under it. Um, but it, just talk about that and how you, how you presented some of those damages and then, you know, tie it into sort of the overall damages picture, because that just seems like something that, you know, it, it can be a hard concept to get the jury to understand that, you know, he can work, he just can't work as good as he could have before. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well sometimes less is more, and that was certainly what had happened in this case. This county where the case was located was, and still is, a very conservative county. Um, The individuals, I grew up in this county, but the individuals who live and work there um, are are very hard workers, Um, a very diverse population, but there are a lot of blue-collar workers, a lot of manual laborers, and no matter what the profession or occupation is, I think overall that family values and and just hard work is valued in the community. And so one of the things that we decided um, early on was that we were going to present the damages in in the most conservative light. Because there were many things that we could have included as probabilities, is something that Kyle was going to need within life care plan. But because of the conservative nature of the jurisdiction, we felt we're not going to do that. And then we can argue that we didn't even ask for all these other things. And we took a little bit of the same approach concerning the lost wages, because there was testimony that that he had been doing some odd jobs and it certainly he could work. So to get up and say that he couldn't work, it just wasn't going to be based upon the evidence. And it wasn't going to be reflective either of the overall values in the community.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, so I, speaking to that, I, uh, Thought that the job you and your dad did in uh, closing where I could really see a couple of the themes that were being developed in that um, one is that, you know, that when you look at a doctor who, you know, is doing his best and 99% of the time he, you know, gives good, you know, good or, you know, reasonable standard of care, but this one mistake, you know, how, how you can still find against that doctor, um, you know, who, who makes that mistake and still, and not not have the jury. Uh, I think you. I think the way your dad explained it was, you know, that there can be reverse sympathy, and you don't want to feel. You're not supposed to feel sympathy for the plaintiff, but don't also feel sympathy for the doctor who most of the time does his job right, but made a mistake here, and now this young man has had to pay for it. And then, you know, and he he did a great job with that, and then I and then also just sort of the. There there obviously must have been a lot of talk or politics in the area about frivolous lawsuits because there was some uh, talk about, you know, the fact that there's a lot of lawyer advertising and there can be frivolous lawsuits, but this isn't one of them. Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to mention, I really liked what he did is uh, talk about the um, that for that day and for that day only, the jury was the government. And so the government, you know, got to decide what was going to happen with Kyle. And, and uh, I, I just like, like that, uh, that uh, visual of empowering the jury that way.
1: Yes. And one of the members of the jury, if I recall, he had a relative who was a state representative. And so we tried to incorporate that. But really, it was to empower the jury to do the right thing on behalf of our client.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, so what did you end up doing uh, f- As in terms of the parents each had a claim for loss of consortium? Did you do anything special um, for that or did you just kind of, you know, ask for it? And, you know, I'm sure they both got on the stand to talk about what they'd been through.
1: I think it was it was just a very soft sound. I don't think that we threw out a number Mm -hmm. and just made, you know, just left it up to the jury. And what's interesting is the amounts that they came up with is pretty close. I think probably the average consortium verdicts within our area.
0: Yeah,
2: Gotcha. And then explain what happened. I was reading some of the appellate stuff and... I know it was really complicated about the prejudgment interest. Like it sounded like maybe you didn't get it at first when you should have gotten it, or the Court of Appeals decided you should have gotten it. So then you got it, but then the Supreme Court maybe either took it away or changed how it was calculated. Well, so
1: I'm smiling because it was very complicated. Right. I, really, well, I went back to law school to learn about the interpretation. So what, so what we did after the trial, we filed a motion for prejudgment interest. Okay. And the trial court judge had a, we had to have an evidentiary hearing on that issue. And we requested further documents as far as the claim file. And one of the interesting things that I found out in doing that is they had filmed this young boy, the insurance company had, and then, but they never used any of the footage.
0: Yeah. I was thinking yeah. about whether or not they, they had sent somebody to follow him and uh, and to film him. So uh, yeah. that, that is interesting to know.
1: And, um, and, you know, we had talked to the clients ahead of time saying you might be filmed. So just, be aware of that and but and we know as lawyers that it happens but yeah just yeah, see it in black and white was was and it was interesting to me that they never used it so um but at any rate so we had that hearing the judge the trial court judge determined that we met the burden of proof with regard to the prejudgment interests he then put on an order for the prejudgment interest based upon the calculations that we gave him. And in Ohio, prejudgment interest is based upon rates established by the tax commissioner of the state. So for every year that the case was pending from the initial point in time that it was filed, we have prejudgment interest separated out by year. Okay. And we it, did not, oh, go ahead,
0: I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean, to, I, I was just gonna ask a quick question. The, the, the There seemed like there had to be a finding that they didn't act in good faith. And that that's a finding that the judge made.
1: That's correct. Okay. So he determined that they did not act in good faith in their negotiations and that we were entitled to prejudgment interest. And what we did is we, we had lump sums for each year. We didn't break it down based upon past past injuries versus future injuries mm-hmm. during the pending of the litigation the statute on pre-judgment interest had changed in the state of Ohio and there was now an issue as to whether or not you could get you you could get pre interest on future injuries okay and so that whole interpretation stemmed on whether or not the prejudgment interest statute, as amended, would be retroactively applied, and the a couple of days before I went up to argue, the and we prevailed in the court of appeals on that, and then the case was taken in on a discretionary basis with regard to the prejudgment interest um, due to the fact that there was a split amongst the appellate courts in Ohio on the interpretation of that statute. And a couple of days before I went to do the oral arguments, the Supreme Court came out in another decision and they were talking about the effect of the dismissal of a 41A dismissal. And in this other case, the Ohio Supreme Court held that a refiling under a 41a dismissal was a brand new case that it didn't um, it didn't extend back or apply back to the date of the initial filing got it and so i knew really going in i was yeah. probably going to lose on right. how much time we had that the prejudgment interest applied because um, it took off a couple of years and those years that it took off the tax rates the interest rates were higher in those years with the tax commissioner
0: okay it, and it sounds like it also effectively took out the ability to collect prejudgment interest on any future damages and so yeah. i'm looking at your verdict form right now so that means uh basically they you would have been able to get prejudgment interest on the past, which was about four hundred ninety-six thousand. Uh-huh. So okay, okay. That's correct.
2: Got it. So, so after,
1: so after the Supreme Court issued its ruling, and unfortunately we lost on yeah. the prejudgment interest, but uh, we were able to get the case resolved and got some additional money for the clients in the form
2: okay. of interest. Gotcha. Good. Well, I was. I I feel like that's always such a victory when you you know, depending on how your state works, when you can either get some sort of stubborn litigiousness award or some sort of, you know, because a lot of times, you know, we talk on this show all the time about people who tried the cases that tried them because the decision was made really easy for them because they never got a remotely reasonable settlement offer. And so I just love when somebody gets popped for not being reasonable about that stuff. Um, But when I was reading the, I guess, the Supreme Court decision, I did not know how it was going to come out. So I was on the edge of my seat, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it still worked out well. Um, but I just feel always like that's kind of icing on the cake, even for the clients, like even when it's not a lot of money, just um, as don't like an worry, acknowledgement. Was, don't worry,
1: it was still a lot of money. <laughs> right,
2: right, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> That's right, that's right. Well, and I feel like clients especially it sounded like there were a lot of strategic decisions in this case where it made sense. But I feel like a lot of times you have to explain to them how long this stuff really takes. And it's, especially now, you know, post COVID. And I think it's really hard for them to understand why some things take so long. Um, so anytime I feel like they're paid for that time is really nice.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) But Whatever.
0: Um, A couple of questions that I had was um, just Kyle. uh, I know you had him on the stand, but did you keep him in the courtroom the whole time or was was he just brought in to testify?
1: He was just brought in to testify. Um, His parents were in the courtroom and we felt like it would just be too much for him. And um, we brought him in the day before when the jury wasn't there. So he would know what the courtroom was like. It's trying to
0: alleviate some of his anxiety over the whole process. But yeah, yeah, we we kept him out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then you mentioned that you got a chance to talk to the jury and you, you uh, told how the whole jury thought that the doctor was not telling the truth. Uh, Was there anything else you learned from the jury that uh, was of interest from a, a trial standpoint?
1: That, um, I don't think so. I mean, that was the main thing yeah. because once that happened, the judge just shut it down. Oh. And oh. my and I got a huge smile on my face. And my dad and I were talking afterwards, and he said, For a second, I saw your mother. my mother had passed away years ago. And my my mom, you know, was our biggest supporter. And she always used to say, Well, just remember, Jennifer, they all lie. <laughs> Whatever you do, they all line. <laughs> yeah. Oh, come on, mom! So, so when when they scream that, it really just reminds me of something that. You know, my mom would have told me. Aww. Yeah, yeah, it was like she was
0: there
2: with us. Yeah,
0: you, you know, one thing I loved about um, uh, about the closing, it, you know, because I think it's important for for lawyers to not only always be credible. We talk about that all the time, uh, but the humility and um, and I thought it was really uh, humble. I read up on your dad, and he's quite the trial lawyer and had a had a pretty amazing career himself. But it was pretty humble of him to admit in closing that uh, he at least in his mind didn't feel like he had done that good on cross with the doctor
2: yeah i like that too uh, and
0: i, I like that he that he was just came out and he said you know i i you know stumbled a little bit through it the doctor obviously you know was ready for all my questions and uh you know so i i, I thought that uh, i thought that took a lot and, I, and i'm sure went a long way with the jury yeah
1: yeah well and i think that he did that because we did have concerns i mean he did make a good witness and and so um, but, but yeah, it just, just brought it back to the, I think the human nature of what we were trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I will tell you, I, so, uh, I've been on both sides of medical malpractice cases, winning and losing. And, uh, I'll, I'll never forget one trial where I thought we had done, we were in a very conservative County. I thought we had done really good on the medicine. But the doctor was just such a nice guy. And, uh, and his lawyer did something that I'll never forget to this day, which was, he said, doctor, do you understand why you're being sued? And the doctor said, yes, I understand why I'm being sued. And if I were in their position, I would sue me too. But then, let me you know, let me tell you why that's not the case. And I was like, that was pretty effective. You know? <laughs> and then the, the other annoying thing about that doctor, which uh, uh, was, uh, I was in the restroom during one of the breaks and I had just cross-examined one of the experts that had gone pretty well. And then the doctor, the defendant doctor comes walking in, and it's a small courthouse and he goes, Steve, that was, you did a really good job on cross-examination there. And I was like, I was like, look, I just don't want to talk to you right now. We just, we can't be friends right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, and the question is like, was he really just that nice, or was he right. really that genius? No, and yeah, it, was, you know, it, it little felt harder it, to go after him.
0: Exactly, it felt like a mixture of both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, uh, well, Jen, this has been just a great conversation. I want to remind everybody that we've been talking about Longbottom and Smith versus uh, Dr. Gary Huber and the uh, Qualified Emergency Specialists, Inc., uh, which resulted in a uh, $2,412,899 verdict on behalf of Kyle Smith um, in Claremont County, Ohio, which is a, a, on the conservative side. So that's always, especially in a medical malpractice case, uh, conservative venue, medical malpractice, everybody who tries cases knows those cases are particularly tough. Um, I just want to make sure Jen, is there anything that you want to make sure sh- that you want our listeners to know about that case that we haven't had a chance to talk about? No, I don't, I don't
1: think so. I, um, I, I, still keep in contact periodically with the family and um i just you know it was just such a privilege and an honor to help them and to help their son
0: i mean that i love hearing that i mean so i was thinking about this uh kyle must be about 27 or so now how how is he doing
1: he's good he's good yeah Uh, he's doing really well and I think considering that everything that he's been through and I think in in large part, a lot of the credit and and his resilience is really due to his parents and and everything that they did from the moment it happened. I mean, they just did not leave his side and made sure he got all the therapy and the help that he needed. and they've always been a loving, supporting family,
0: so... Well, that's great, that's great. A a Terrific job and uh, and a really interesting case. Um, Mm -hmm. Let me just remind everybody, we've been talking to Jen Lawrence from the Lawrence Firm, uh, based out of Covington, Kentucky, but practices both in Ohio and in Kentucky. And you can look up Jen at lawrencefirm.com. That's L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E firm.com. Jen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, uh, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we've we uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a, a glossary of the legal terminology on the Uh, website.
2: Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial, you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at trialspodcast.com. Note: If you have something mean to say, we don't have email.
0: (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) We only need uh, positive commentary. Yeah,
2: we're fragile. Um, You can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts: Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say.